The other thing, um, and, and we actually work with a lot of a lot of the top gravel athletes, th that makes this so important is, you know, I teach it more as using arrow to really shift the curve or, or sort of bend the slope of the line on your caloric burn, right? So if, if I can get you really arrow and I can save you, you know, uh, 100, 150 calories an hour, that really changes the dynamic of your race, especially if it's an eight hour race or a 10 hour race. One of the things I tell my engineers all the time is we want to make sure that we're finding the good solution. But the real problem is, are we asking the right question, right? Like if we're solving the wrong question, then that's a long term, that's a total failure. You know, it's also like the Mike Tyson thing, right? Everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the face. And, and I think that's that's life, right? I mean, I think your, your biggest mistake is, is going into something thinking like, oh, I've got this great plan and I'm not going to get hit in the face. And, you know, my job especially with my my young staff my young engineers is like oh no like you're gonna get hit in the face like right away <laughs> you know and and the smarter you think you are and the more planning you've done the quicker it'll happen we can turn a a you know five thousand dollar you know racing bike frame into you know forty dollars of sealant right that's that's the current <laughs> state of carbon recycling i mean the the reality is every carbon fiber component that's ever been made and sold in cycling is is destined for landfill i'm anthony walsh this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, a founder series, where we get inside the heads of those who drive this planet forward. You can quote them, you can disagree with them, you can glorify or vilify them. The only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. It's episode 636 of the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Today, I chat with Joshua Portner from Silka. Let's cue that intro. HVMN is one of today's show sponsors. I've been hearing pro riders talking about ketones since I started this show. How they're the secret weapon of the world's elite, but what are they? Well, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. They're up to 28% more efficient than glucose, making them a super efficient fuel source for those long rides or races. HVMN have developed a product called Ketone IQ, which is a drinkable ketone designed to support energy, focus, and endurance. It was developed alongside the US military. It's designed to elevate your ketone levels for up to four hours, which is longer than any other product on the market. Plus it's caffeine free and it's compliant with the World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines. Ketone IQ shots are the best way to get your ketones in on the go. I think it's so amazing that we can now as amateur cyclists have access to ketones. For years, they've really only been available to professional athletes, but now us mere mortals can get all the benefits of using this superior fuel source. I'm also finding them great first thing in the morning. I'm taking one on an empty stomach as soon as I wake up. It suppresses hunger and it's improved my focus so I can get that deep podcast research in early in the morning. So go right now and visit HVMN dot com forward slash roadman cycling and use the code roadman 20 at checkout to save 20 percent if you're looking to up your game this coming season this is the edge you've been looking for folks so visit hvmn.com forward slash roadman cycling and use the code roadman 20 at checkout to save 20 percent on your order all the details of that offer are in today's show notes Roadman, welcome back to another founder series podcast and welcome back into 2023 if you haven't had a chance, go back and check out my New Year Resolution podcast. It's been one of the most shared podcasts, definitely in the last month, probably because I asked everybody to share it around, but still, it still counts. It still counts. Uh, we're hitting it hard over on Twitter, and that's the plan for 2023. Both myself and Sarah are on Twitter. So the links to follow us are in the show notes down below. And the idea is to aggregate our audience here from the podcast and have a virtual meetup on Twitter, a place where we can go and we can actually have chat back and forth dialogue. Today's conversation is a super fascinating one. I'm chatting with Joshua Portner from Silka. If you don't know Silka, it's just the coolest Italian manifestation of craftsmanship and beauty. Go and check them out. We're going to put a link to them in today's show notes. But it's a company that was founded in 1917 by someone called Felice Sacchi. 
And from 1917 to 2013, it was a family-run company. And it had ideals which were sort of deeply rooted in a combination of durable materials, traditional craftsmanship, but always pushing the envelope with innovation. It's no accident that so many of the products that were built back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s are still widely used today. You see Silka pumps and tracks and bike shops all over the world. Now, in 2013, Claudio Saki, who was the grandson of the original owner, he sold the company to Josh. Joshua Portner, who I'm talking to today. Joshua is a student of the sport. He's obsessed and an absolute genius when it comes to aerodynamics. He's a genius engineer, but he is also someone who had a deep experience in the sport, working his way up to technical director at Zip Speed Weaponry before purchasing the company. This is a valuable insight into how to build a company, the innovation of the cycling industry over the past decade, and where Josh sees it heading in the decades to come. Let me welcome to the Roadman Cyclone Podcast, Joshua Portner. Josh, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Fellow podcaster, Marginal Gains <laughs> Podcast, so he's the legit setup if you're watching on video, microphone, cool looking background. <laughs> and only a cool looking background, as we just said, you turn it, turn it 180 and you, you do not want to see the pile of broken bits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Josh, we all ride bikes. We and most people listen to this podcast. We ride bikes, but we don't mm. all sort of take responsibility for solving industry problems and trying to move the industry forward. Like I, I love that quote that an entrepreneur is someone who takes responsibility for a problem that isn't theirs. What is it about your makeup that's made you so passionate about solving these problems that inherently aren't your problems to solve? Gosh, wow, that's the best phrasing of that question I've ever had from anybody. Um, I think at some core level, like they are, at least in the beginning, they were my problems. You know, I've been inventing stuff since I was 15. You know, I think I had my first product band. Um, I made some uh, time trial mittens out of a pair of ripped up shorts when I was a 15-year-old junior. <laughs> and I great. showed up at the at the nationals with them and, you know, they just got these looks and they're like, oh yeah, I don't think you can use those. I'm like, I don't think there's anything in the rule book that says I can't. And of course they made me take them off. And, and I think within a year there was like, you, you can't use a mitten that covers your fingers for, I think they said dexterity reasons or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I, I've been dreaming stuff up and, and, and literally having it banned since I was a, a, a teenager. So, you know, some of the problems like Silka is solving are, mine um maybe way back in history maybe current but then a lot of them get to be you know we work with a lot of teams a lot of athletes uh, a lot of mechanics and so a lot of the problems are, are their problems and it's it's not too big of a step to look at a problem that a pro mechanic is having and say oh i i bet bike shop mechanics are having this or i bet home mechanics are having this um, and if we can solve it there's you know we can really improve somebody's experience working on the bike and and so i think you know, I use a lot of other people's problems, um, plus my own kind of background knowledge of also doing all this stuff to, yeah, try to make our little slice of the world slightly better. And 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 a lot of times, you know, the the internet with all of its wisdom, you know, because nobody needs this or wants this. And uh, you know, I'm always one to jump on the forums and be like, if you look at this product and say nobody needs it, it's just not for you. You know, like every product doesn't have to be for everybody. There is a special type of person though, and you mentioned bike mechanics there, and it's an interesting one because most of my local bike shops, you'll send the bike in and maybe it'll have a, you know, maybe the internal routing is a good example now because mm. internal cable routing is no fun. I remember dropping a TT bike into my local bike shop to get routed and he's like, no, we can't do that. <laughs> and I was like, okay, he's like, we don't have a tool to do that. And I was like, well, look, it, like it can be done. It's just like, you can't do it. And dropping it to another friend of mine who I still use as a mechanic. And he's just, he's one of these mechanics that he sees solutions and not problems. Hmm. He just gave me a bike back like one day later, wired up, no drama. And I was like, how did you cable that? And he's like, oh yeah, that was a bitch. And I was <laughs> like, how did you do it? And he's like, well, I glued a piece of fishing wire to the end of the gear cable and then I glued a piece of tread to the end of the fishing line and I used a yeah. hoover to suck the tread through the far side of the bars <laughs> and then pulled it through. I was like, there's just special people in this world when it comes yeah. to solving yeah. problems. Uh, that's totally true, yeah. The I think, go ahead. 
I was going to say one of the the things that that story why it resonates is we fail all the time in this stuff. When you're trying to create stuff, it must be just constant, constant failure. But mm. instead of <laughs> this special breed of you know my crazy friend mechanic and you and the entrepreneurs to drive this whole industry forward, you don't really interpret failure as failure. You interpret failure differently, where a lot of people interpret it as, oh no, this isn't for me. You just say, okay, well, that's one way that hasn't worked. I've ruled that out and it's something mm. positive. Yeah, I mean, I, I was fortunate you know, early in, in my career to learn from you know one of the best, uh, Andy Ording, who was the uh, owner of Zip, and you know he, he almost everyone in that company came out of auto racing, and I had come. I was a cyclist that moved into auto racing and then back into cycling, and you know one of his mantras that that we live by here is you know fail fast and fail small, right? So it's <laughs> it's you know hey we could we could sit around this table talking about how to solve this problem for an hour and we won't know any more about how to solve it than we do right now, right? We'll just feel, we'll just feel like we do. Or we could go out there and, and get some fishing line and duct tape and, you know, some paper clips and, you know, the Hoover <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and see if that works, right? And, and, you know, everything that you try that fails is, is one, it's a, a learning experience because some, some fraction of that is going to work in some way, right? Or it's going to fail in a way that you say, oh, I never expected it to fail like that. You know, I, I mean, I, I think some of my best ideas come out of these really unexpected modes of failure or ways that things have failed. We said, oh gosh, I would have, I would have bet a hundred dollars. It would have not worked for this reason, but it actually didn't work for this other reason. Um, and, and a lot of times those, you know, are, try to get you back to, one of the things I tell my engineers all the time is we want to make sure that we're finding the good solution but the real problem is are we asking the right question <laughs> right like if we're solving the wrong question then that's a long term that's a total failure so you know we want to fail fast fail small fail quickly in doing things and then we want to share that with each other because everybody you know i think that's where hey, you value like diversity in teams and things right everybody's got you know i've got guys working with me that are you know, come out of the aircraft. I've got a, you know, a Marine diesel helicopter mechanic uh, on staff. You know, we've got engineers who've worked in uh, multiple, you know, aerospace fields and, uh, you know, and then you've, you've got a guy here grew up on a farm and can just pretty much intuitively <laughs> fix anything. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's, you get all of those perspectives around a really hard problem and, and you just start bouncing ideas back and forth with that, um, you know, I would say my, my real job in, in a lot of problem solving is to try to allow people the freedom to feel like they can fail, right? Like, like spit out that terrible, you know, quote unquote, terrible idea that you have that you're embarrassed to say, like, if, if I can own that failure for you and make you feel comfortable in sharing that idea, you know, maybe that isn't the best idea, but maybe, maybe another idea springs forth from that or, or triggers something in someone else's mind that they've seen that, that lets them feel comfortable sharing their idea, right? And and so I think it's it's the entrepreneur. A lot of it is just fostering an environment where people feel comfortable failing. <laughs> um, and and then too, you know, we we celebrate it. I mean, we every year we have you know kind of like our our failure of the year. You know who and and <laughs> you know sadly like like half the time it's it's you know usually me that's done like the stupidest thing. Like you know I always joke there's you know only. Two fire extinguishers have ever been uh, used here at Silken. Both times it was my fault. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love that. Isn't there a great lesson in there for everybody? Whether it's getting out the door and training, building an annual training plan, or whatever, you know, starting that weight loss uh, journey. It's like an inch of action is better than a mile of good intentions. Mm. No, that's that is so true. Yeah, that is so true. And and I think it's it, it is understanding that you know, plans versus planning, right? I mean, I can't remember it was the, uh, maybe it was Eisenhower, one of the World War II, you know, uh, generals saying, you know, plans are ultimately useless, but the planning was everything, right? It was like the act of doing the planning, gaining the knowledge, gaming it out, you know, that's so important, but it's, you know, it's also like the Mike Tyson thing, right? Everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the face. And and I think that's that's life, right? I mean, I think your your biggest mistake is is going into something thinking like, oh, I've got this great plan and I'm not going to get hit in the face. And, you know, my job, especially with my, my young staff, my young engineers is like, oh no, like you're going to get hit in the face, like right away, <laughs> you know, and, and the smarter you think you are and the more planning you've done, the quicker it'll happen. Y you know, it's not how we fail. It's how we, we get back up and, and 
go forward. You know, I think those things are so, so critical. And I, and I do think, t- taking this on a little bit of a tangent, you know, I probably, you know, I've been around 25 years or whatever in this industry and, and played in a lot of facets, right? Carbon and aero and, and we've just done a lot of really cool stuff. And so I, you know, probably two or three times a month get a, you know, some inventor, I kind of joke about them being all crazy inventors, you know, in my inbox with, you know, this world changing idea. And, you know, one of the things I, I tell all of them is, you know, so many of them have spent three, four, five years in this kind of self-imposed vacuum trying to like perfect this thing that's going to change the world. And in a lot of cases, you know, they've strayed off into this space where you're like, wow, that's just a bad idea that's not going to work. You know, had they had they felt the the freedom to fail or to to share it with people and get feedback or, or you know to to risk embarrassment or, or whatever they they may have refined those ideas in other better directions. I think when you operate in those vacuums as well, you you have an overinflated sense of how important that idea is. You know, I've been playing in the entrepreneurial space for quite a few years and. People initially guard ideas, and then mm. with the passing of time, you realize ideas are shit. It's everyone has <laughs> ideas. You know, I could, me and you could go on a tangent in this podcast for the next two hours and come up with all the great innovations that are going to happen in the world for the next hundred years. It's execution of those ideas mm. that means everything. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And, and, you know, another sort of mantra we have here, right, is like, doesn't matter what you start, it matters what you finish. <laughs> and you know, I need to tell my dad that one. Yeah. I mean, we're all, we're all full of, you know, I mean, you, you have enough super smart, clever, interested and interesting people. You know, I mean, we're constantly sitting around, wouldn't it be cool if, wouldn't, this, oh, we should do this. Oh, we should do that. And it, it, it's so easy to start the next thing. But, you know, you, you only get graded on, on what you complete, right? Nobody, at the end of the day, you get no points in life for starting. You only get the, the, the points or the, the business success or the, the whatever for, for finishing. And, and that, you know, sometimes, especially with, with super creative people, that's hard because it's, you know, another, this is going to become a podcast of like my silly aphorisms, but, you know, we, we actually have a sign on the wall. This is, you know, 90% there, 90% to go. <laughs> and that, and I think that that's one of the hardest things for, you know, I, I think no matter what you're into, business, technology, training, all that stuff, you know, it's so human nature to like, you know, you've, you've gotten to 90% and it feels great and you feel like you're just there and then you realize like, oh, wow, now stuff's really getting hard, right? And, and that's where the motivation can wane because it feels like, well, my God, I, I'm so close. Why is this getting so hard? Um, but but that's life. That's reality. You know, the, the it's those last little bits that that push you to the finish line that they are the hardest, right? It's that you know last mile of the marathon is is way harder than the first one. Um, and I think it's like that whether you're trying to get a product to market or trying to get a you know a, a, an idea or a concept you know, refined and, and, and sold. And, you know, it's when you don't really buckle down and suffer that last 10%, which is truly the 90%, you know, I think that's when, when things don't work, right. That's when you're sitting, we, we, we do an exercise here that, um, that I like to call the, the, the pre postmortem, right. And it's, it's like, okay, we've got this project and I'm going to put ourselves, let's cast ourselves one year in the future. And this, this has been a total failure. And then you look around the room and you're like, okay, what, what did we do that, that this failed? Right. And, and I think that's it puts really interesting. It puts everybody's mind in a, in an interesting place because I think it takes away some of the, you know, sometimes you might have a room full of people and they're thinking in the back of their minds, like, oh gosh, I really don't, I really don't think that was a good thing to put in that product. Or I don't think, I don't think this is going to sell. And, and, you know, we all know that I told you so person <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the thing about the, I told you so person, it, it Sometimes they're just being a jerk, but oftentimes they're the person that may have had some insight that they were just too scared or worried or embarrassed to share. Sometimes they're the person that, you know, it's that uh, schadenfreude, right? <laughs> they're, they're hoping it fails so they can say, I told you so. But, but most, most often in a, a well-meaning group of people, they're just a little bit embarrassed at, at being the one person in the room saying this is wrong. But if you put this out in the future and you're like, hey, no, this has been a total failure. We really screwed this up. Let's figure out why we screwed this up. And, you know, there's always a voice who's like, well, it might have been that this wasn't a good idea. 
And, and, you know, and it can totally get the room really thinking about problems in a different way. And I think that's a, it, it's just an, it, an, another kind of important aspect of, you know, nothing we ever do is going to be perfect, right? And, and perfection can really be the enemy of, uh, of getting a product to market or, or getting one because, you know, we're never, ever going to be perfect in anything that, that we do. How do you create that space for, I'm talking more rather than company-wide personally, how do you create that headspace for creativity? I know Stephen Pressfield has a brilliant book, The War of Art, and in it he speaks of the muse. And for him, when he sits down to write at, I think it's like 6 a.m. to uh, 1 o'clock each day, he said he creates like an environment for a miracle to happen. So he creates an environment where this energy, this muse can show up, tap him on the shoulder and say, okay, here's the good idea. And he said, often they'll look back at a book and think there's no way I have thoughts or opinions that are that well-formed, that well-joined mm. up. He's like something magical happened there. Some energy happened where something else was operating through him as a vessel. Do you have like a a technique or a strategy or, you know, do you go windy walks? Do you go on float tanks? Is there a place you quieten the minds to get these ideas out or do they just happen chance? Oh gosh. Honestly, I mean, they, you know, a bike ride is a great place to, you know, come up with an idea, right? I, I think, you know, generally I think your brain is putting the pieces together for your best work when you're not trying to do your best work, right? If I say, it's why I'm a big kind of anti-meeting, anti conference room sort of a person. You know, if I say, okay, we're all going to get together and be creative for an hour, you know, that's just a recipe for, <laughs> for not good. Um, but I think if, if you know, we can expose ourselves to the problem, talk it through, and then kind of let it ruminate. And, you know, I think some of my best ideas are, you know, I'll have a conversation with a, a writer, a mechanic, uh, you know, one of my people, and you just kind of like put a pin in it mentally of like, oh, that's interesting. I don't, I, I don't know what I think about that yet. Is that really a problem? Is what you're describing really the problem? Just sort of mentally flag it, but then it, it seems inevitable that a good idea is going to come at some point in the future, you know, in the shower, <laughs> right? Or, yeah. or when you're solving some other problem. And I, can, I cannot count the number of problems I've had insight into in trying to solve something else and, and kind of finding a, an analog. You're like, oh, wow, that that's actually a little bit analogous to this other thing from three months ago. You know, I wonder, I wonder if a solution like this could work in that space. And, and do you rely solely on mental recall for that? Or is it like an index card system or journaling or anything like that? Yeah, I, so uh, when I look at my staff, we're, we're all over the map. I almost write nothing down. Um, and I've kind of been that way my, my whole life. And so as a result, I'm, I'm actually really terrible at a lot of the business side of the business because I, I forget stuff and um, I, I need people. I'm really fortunate to have um, some staff. Like my one of my staff, Lisa, she really saves my butt all the time because she's pretty <laughs> meticulous and she kind of remembers stuff that I don't. But yeah, for me, like the the writing down of stuff, I don't know. It it like takes me out of that creative space. And so I sometimes I'll draw or sketch, and I've I, I've had a notebook for probably five years that's half full, and there's some interesting sketches and stuff in there. But yeah, I think my mental process is generally much more mental. You know, I've got staff who work for me that are, you know, amazing. I'm always jealous of like the checklisting and the drawing and the, you know, I look at some of my, you know, one of my uh, engineers, his notebook is just like, you know, it's like Da Vinci's, like you could publish this. It's, <laughs> it's like so the beautiful cool. mind. You know, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and trust me, I, I have tried, you know, I've gone on the like, nope, I am going to be like that. <laughs> And it just it just doesn't work for me. So, but the world needs fishers, and it needs farmers. It's two different types of people. Yeah, no, that's true. And and I think you know, every we're all we're just all different in our uh, you know our, our needs, but our thought processes, and and you know, like I I think I tend to be, um, and I think I drive my staff here crazy. But you know, I'm a, a big visualizer, and so for me, everything's about mental models. You know, I think I probably say the phrase mental model. 25 times a week or something. And, you know, I'm going to get punched for it one of these days. But, you know, it, it, for me, that's the thing. And, and, but that's not for everybody, right? Some people have to like build it or, you know, touch it, right? Or, or really like see it, you know, like I, one of my guys, he really, if we're having a conversation, like if I've got my mental model, like I will build like a simple wireframe CAD model, like, okay, something like this, right? Because he's much more of like a, 
like I need to see it to see it. And we, if, you know, if we're not, if I'm not, I'm a terrible drawer, unfortunately, but you know, if I'm not catting for him, then he's, he's not seeing it. Whereas I think the other way, you know, he can sort of throw words at me and I can maybe a little bit better put that together in my head, but we're all, you know, we're all different, right? So it's trying to come up with ways for the teams to communicate better and to share the info better. And, and then sometimes in there, I, you know, I'll say quite humorously, I mean, some of our cleverest ideas have come from total misunderstandings between communication styles, right? Like, you know, I, one of my engineers, Andrew, who was with me all the way back to zip days, um, you know, we, we had a project a couple of years ago where he was explaining something and I was like, totally, oh yeah, oh man. And I'm drawing and, you know, like having this great idea and like, oh, dude, so this, totally different. this is brilliant. Like, yeah, I think we've solved this. And so, you know, I do it, send it up and I send it to him and he's like, what the hell is that? I'm like, this is what we just talked about. He's like, that's not at all what I was talking about. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so I think you just have to, I don't know, there, there is something when you get in those zones, sometimes it is like it's just coming out of the ether and you're drinking from the fire hose and trying to just make sense of the information. And, and you know, sometimes sometimes it makes something beautiful and sometimes it, you know, it's rubbish. And the, and the, the key for us, right, is just to get, you know, if it's rubbish, we, need, we want to figure that out as quickly as possible and, and, and find the next, the better thing. I think we're in a, a strange societal place with marketing and social media and it's a, it's a very, you know, we talked about on air the, you know, the idea of having a set and then if you move the camera a few inches to the right of the set, there's total chaos. Social media is very much the same these days. It's like, you know, it's the glossy pictures, but then you meet the influencer and they're actually quite a shy, insecure person who's riddled with problems. And mm. when I go onto the Silka website, it, look, it's it's beautiful. They're they're works of art, and they're gonna they're gonna you know grace anyone as a amazing gift and you know something they'll treasure. But I, I want you to talk to me behind the scenes of building the company. If I say to you a single moment that stands out of like the darkest moment or the hardest day or the most difficult phone call or email, what was that? Ooh. Oh gosh, it, it. I think that's the, certainly a thing that gets obscured. You know, you're. It's just like life, right? I mean. It, Bad things happen. Um, we had our our longtime um, head of uh, shipping, Kezi. Her entire family was uh, murdered uh, oh my gosh. about a year and a half ago, and a uh, whole family killed. And uh, you know, it's just like, yeah. I mean, how, what do you do? You know, like the, the you've got everybody in the company's devastated. The you know. Yeah, I mean, at some level, that's a, you know, you step back and go, wow, this, it's a lot bigger than just business, <laughs> right? Like, like, oh, wow, the company feels really small today. Um, yeah, you know, I think at, at, at Zip, we had a similar, th you know, my our tenure at Zip, we had two employees die in various tragic accidents. And, you know, those days you, it, I think they're good because you realize that it's, there's more to life than the company, but you also realize that, the company is a family and, you know, we spend, we spend the majority of our life at work, right? You know, I'm, I'm here 10 plus hours a day, every day. I, I see these people, you know, more than I see my own family. And so you want to surround yourself with people that you appreciate and appreciate you and who want to be here. And, and, you know, I would say we, we have a policy here that, you know, if you, um, if, if you don't fit in in the first, you know, 30, 45 days, you know, we just give you a severance and you're out. And, you know, I think that comes from, you know, if, if you don't want to be here, I definitely don't want you to be here. You know, if, if you see this as a, as a job, um, you know, that you have to do to put food on the table and, and whatever, then my God, go, go find something that you, you like, or, or you're passionate about. And, you know, and, and I mean, some of the jobs that we have here, you know, I don't want to do. Um, but we're all different and, and you find people that love doing them. And, you know, I've got, <laughs> I've got a, a woman who works for me who's like the most amazing, like sandblasting, polishing, you know, essentially just finishing of things. And, you know, I look at that, like, I'll, you know, I'll do that for an hour or two and, and then my mind wanders and the work gets terrible. And I think like, <laughs> oh my God, I, you know, I would never want a job where I sandblasted all day. 
you know, and, and you talk to her about it, and, you know, and she's got her own cabinet and her own special gloves. And, you know, like she, we, we've let her have her own setup and she's just happy as a clam. She's like, oh, thank you. You know, I've never had a job before where they, you know, they treated me this well. And, you know, I just really love what I do and I'm proud of my work. And, you know, and so I, I think no matter what the job is, there's somebody out there that that's fit for it. And so um, I think when you're building a family, almost like you are, debt has a really it's a really simple way of contextualizing things. A friend of mine passed away a few weeks ago and I had a day just sulking. I was you know, in Girona, the most beautiful place in the world to ride a bike and I had nothing to do, only ride my bike and a couple of podcasts. And I didn't ride my bike and I sat on my couch and I watched some shitty Netflix movies and I drank too many beers <laughs> that night. Like when does that yeah, ever help? Yeah. And I went the next day sort of down a bit of a, a rabbit hole and I've always enjoyed sort of stoic philosophy and stoic teachings. And I went down a, a rabbit hole and I was reading some texts There were the primary idea was that debt actually isn't an event. Debt is more of a process. And the process starts the moment we're born. And you can think of about like the sounds of time moving through an egg timer. So it's like the sounds of time are slipping away on all of us. So it's like any day you waste, any moment you waste, it's just those sounds of time slipping away. You're not getting mm. it back. So it's like, you know what? There's no way my buddy would have wanted me sitting around like watching Netflix and not riding my bike <laughs> in Girona. And it's just, it's a lovely way yeah. of putting it into context. You know, it's almost, it's a, it feels disingenuous to take something as tragic as death of a loved one and turn it into a positive motivation. But in a lot of ways, it can be. Yeah, and I and I think it's back to a little what we talked earlier about with you know failure and and getting punched in the face. And you know, it's we we can't fix this, right? We can't bring our friends yeah. back, but we can. It's not an engineering problem. Yeah, yeah, right. I, I, like God, I wish I could solve that. But we can and we do choose how we we go forward, right? Like that's the one thing, that's the only thing in this ridiculous equation that that we do have control over. And and so I think when you look at that, like really everything else, it's a choice. You know, what okay, this is terrible and we are devastated. And how are we gonna choose to to move forward? You know, and, and we all need a little bit of space here and there and a little bit of grace at times to just, you know, watch Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> drink, right? Like we've all, we're all going to end up there at some point, but I think it's the choice is in saying like, oh, I I did I did that for a day, I'm done. <laughs> and now I'm going to do the next thing, right? Or I'm going to you know, I'm going to move forward. You know, and I think that's it's true with people, it's true with companies, it's if you're not failing, you're not trying. And uh and so I think we I guess moving on from the death conversation, but it's you know, we're we're all failing at life every day in all this stuff. And, you know, I do think that's where like the social media culture is so toxic. Um, you know, I have, I have teenagers and I'm really fortunate. My, my daughter, she could absolutely care less about her phone has no social. I mean, she just, she's artistic and creative and she loves being outside. That's a good parenting job right there. No, no. Cause my, my son is the complete opposite of that. So you, <laughs> you would think you, you, I could tell you about her and be like, Oh, I'm such a good parent. But then, you know, we look at him and he like, he just craves all of that stuff. And, and it's all we can do to try to keep him away from it and control it. Cause you know, as soon as they go to school, it's like, you know, even if you take away all the devices, they just go to school and they, they do it on their friends' devices. But I do think, you know, so much of that depression and angst and all those other emotional things are coming from it. You know, nobody's failing. I mean, unless you're watching like fail videos or whatever, but nobody's failing on Instagram, right? Everybody looks perfect and awesome and amazing. And, you know, and, and the reality of life is that, my God, you're failing constantly at everything that you do. And, and especially if you're, you know, I really grew up as a kind of a very um, high A, we use this personality indexing thing here at work to help people understand each other. And so like, I'm a super high A, like I need to win. Um, and I, but I also need like perfection. Like that's, those are my big drives, like winning and being perfect. And so, you know, i I can drive to work and feel like, oh man, I really, you know, I, I really screwed that up. You know, I, <laughs> I misjudged the traffic and I thought I should turn here and that. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm the person that can like, we'll just sit there and seethe in the line at the grocery store. That's like, I knew I should have picked that other line, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, like I, I, I just have these weird drives for that stuff. And a lot of that, you, you just have to try to strip away when you're trying to do something new and creative. Cause the only way you'll ever 
get close to perfection in anything is to just do the same thing over and over and over again. And that, that's not growth, right? That's not personal growth. It's not company growth. But I do think that's what the social media stuff is feeding our kids. I mean, all of us, but our kids especially, right? It's, it's just feeding them that like nuanced, you know, the influencer who's taking essentially the same photo over and over and over again and just trying to like, you know, tweak it and perfect it and show a little bit more cleavage and, you know, right. I mean, it's just like, they're just trying to like, you know, like what's, what's the thing I can tweak to get, you know, the next like and the next like. And of course, all the people in the real world who are looking at that are just thinking like, oh gosh, I, I ripped my pants when I sat down on the bus today. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're dealing with like real world crap and to take a little bit of a deep dive down your engineering background which i'm fascinated on like i got a chance to spend some time in colombia last year and a beautiful country but such a tragic history to it as well of conflict and i visited a company called humanos 3d and they create 3d printed limbs for children who have lost their limbs Mm. in conflicts and amazing application of that technology but i wonder in our industry how important is 3d going to be in the next you know i had uh, ari wallach on the podcast brilliant author of a book called the long path where he just advocates this view of zooming out look past you know five years to 10 years even look past our Mm. lifetime you know why would you plant a carob tree if you're a 50 year old man it takes (laughs) 70 years to come to blossom you won't be here to see it but you, yeah. somebody planted the carob tree, you know, a hundred years ago that you get to shelter under now. Mm. So amazing things happen when we zoom out. I'm wondering, using that sort of saying, framing and zooming out, how important is 3D printing as a process in bike manufacturing? Oh, it, it's the future. I, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced of that. I, yeah, yeah I mean, you, you make me think, you know, it's the, the my favorite Japanese proverb, right? That the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's absolutely the future and maybe not in the format that we're doing it today or some of the stuff that we're trying to do today. You know, I, I, uh, you know, we were one of the first to go really deep and heavy into 3d and, and, you know, it's, I think people in general don't really care how stuff gets made. You know, most people just want the stuff and, yeah. um, you know, it, it's a little bit like we've joked for years about, you know, the handmade bicycle movement. It's like, well, technically all the bicycles are handmade. It's just the ones that you don't think are handmade are handmade in China. <laughs> <laughs> by yeah. armies of women, you know, doing unbelievable handwork. I mean, hundreds of pieces of carbon, you know, to make that frame that you're saying is not handmade. But when I when I cast that future vision, and, and this is why I, I got so convinced to make such a massive investment in 3D was, you know, the technology is going to evolve. And I think people get trapped in that, well, it's it's not so good today. Or, you know, these parts, look at the parts, they all look 3D printed. People won't accept that, you know, and like, well, yeah, but that's today. You know, if you, if you believe that about, you know, uh, uh, cars or, or aircraft, you know, 70 years ago, you're, you bet wrong. I think the things working in 3D printing's future are the use of materials. And I think a lot of that side of things is going to be driven by this sort of newfound interest or re-interest in space, right? If we're going to put a colony on the moon, we are not going to send machine shops to the moon with lathes and mills and all of this other equipment. Shipping pallets up there. Yeah. And 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 then ship, you know, we're, we're not going to ship lathes and 12 sizes of bar stock and we're not going to ship mills and 15 sizes of plate and, and other, you know, stock. We're going to send a bunch of 3D printers and a bunch of powder and that powder can be turned into anything. You know, and it's I th- magic. think the other piece, it, it is like magic. Yeah. And I, and I think the other piece of that is the waste, you know, the, the powder is so expensive uh, today and, and history has shown us that that, that comes down over time. Right. And, and we've already seen it. I mean, the powder, you know, we're using today is like 500 bucks a kilogram. And, and 10 years ago, it was like $5,000 a kilogram. So, you know, it's still bloody expensive, but it's, it's coming down. And five years from now, it's going to be half of what it is now. I don't know what that is, but it's going to go down. But, you know, that powder that we send to the moon or that I bring here into the Silka building, I mean, we get 98, 99% material utilization. That's unbelievable. That's unheard of. That's unheard of. You know, if you, the the typical aerospace part and, you know, we're just down the street from Rolls-Royce Jet Engine and we know those guys super well and we, they have the same printers as us and we share a lot of best practices and they all ride bikes. So it's, you know, it's cool. We get, we get the best factory tours. I'll say that. But, um. <laughs> 
But, you know, a, a typical aerospace part has what they call like a buy-to-fly ratio. So it's how much material you bought versus how much ends up in your aircraft. And on average, it's more than 10 to 1 waste, right? So if you buy a kilogram of titanium today, you're typically turning that into a sub-100 gram part. Unreal. So, you know, 90 plus percent of that material is, is waste that now has to be packaged up, transported back somewhere, remelted. Um, in a lot of cases, it, it, because it's contaminated with coolant and other stuff, it, it maybe can't then be recertified as an aerospace-grade material, so it has to find its way into some other, you know, use. Um, or you can do things to get it certified as an aerospace material, but it requires massive, massive amounts of energy um, and testing, and of course that drives the cost up. And aluminum is quite similar, right? And carbon at, at this point is is quite similar, except with the carbon, we don't have any really good uh, recycling, you know, we're, I think we're doing the first carbon fiber recycling in the, in the bike industry. And, you know, we're, I didn't even know it was possible. Well, so we're, we're shredding frames and wheels and race car parts and pyrolyzing the epoxy off of it and then using it as the uh, filler in a tubeless sealant. Nuts. But, but I think it shows you the, the, the relative value of the recycled material to the, you know, <laughs> this stuff is, yeah. we can turn a, a, you know, $5,000 you know, racing bike frame into, you know, $40 of sealant, right? That's, that's the current <laughs> state of carbon recycling. I mean, the, the reality is every carbon fiber component that's ever been made and sold in cycling is, is destined for landfill. Um, and, and there's just, at the moment, and they're working on this, and we actually are working with a lab at Purdue that's, that's extremely cutting edge on this, but there will be recyclable carbon in the future, but we're just not there yet. And, and, to get there, we're going to have to completely change the way we think about carbon. We're going to have to go to thermoplastic resins. And, and, but even then, we're going to struggle with things like, you know, uh, the level of product that you can make with the recycled product. You know, there's sort of this like A, B, C, D, like rating of, you know, okay, if A is aerospace, you know, those things can get recycled and, and you know, aerospace aluminum gets recycled into cans. And then cans can be recycled into more cans. But we can't really go the other way. Um, carbon yeah. fiber is a little bit the same way, right? I can turn your bike frame into sealant, but I, I but you can't, can't turn the sealant into a bike frame. <laughs> I can't turn sealant into a bike frame, and I can't at the moment turn a bike frame into another bike frame or an, any other structural yeah. part. So, but but with three D printing, you know, things the technology is so new and so different that it's really requiring us to think differently because it, it's not the same old thing. You know, I don't have ninety percent waste. I don't have all of those weird machining uh, limitations. You know, I, uh, I think from an engineering perspective, you know, I, I'm not restricted at material removal from the outside, right? So from an aerodynamic perspective, it's going to get some pretty slippy materials coming out. Oh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, we're already there. You know, it, it's, yeah, because you, you can have a structure that's all skin, right? It's all outer surface. And then we can do whatever we want on the inside you know, even more fun. And, and, you know, we work with a lot of the the titanium frame manufacturers and and doing a lot of custom, you know, aero bars and other parts for people. And when people come in from other industry, they just, they can't think properly in this world, you know, and I always have to tell them like the more crazy that's in your part, the lighter and cheaper the part's <laughs> going to be. Right. And, and, you know, when you come from CNC, it's like every, you know, every minute on the CNC machine is like another dollar spent. Um, and, you know, and so you have to take them and go, no, if, if you want to put 10,000 tiny holes in this part to remove weight, it's going to make the part lighter and cheaper. <laughs> like, it's the complete opposite of everything you've ever known. And so I think for me, what's exciting now is like, I, you know, I feel like I can sort of see the future, but I'm too colored by the past, right? I, I grew up in a different era. I think differently. You know the 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 head engineer at Renishaw when when we got our first machines and came in he said uh, he said you know if I were you I instead of hiring somebody who's ever made anything before I would get the smartest greenest kid you can find from college <laughs> and let him start from zero because any prior manufacturing experience is going to completely taint the creativity here and <laughs> and so we did exactly that and and. It's just bonkers. I mean, the the stuff that they come up with. I mean, I I go back there every day with looking at, you know, we've probably got 30 customers that we print for plus our own stuff. And I mean, some of the solutions that we're coming up with, even just down to like the the way some, you know, if, like if you print a cube in, in 3D printing, it will print most accurately if you print it off of its corner. So like it prints up into space, like a, it, it 
there's just things that you never would have thought of, right? I mean, I would have spent a month trying to figure out how to print it more square, like, you know, sitting flat on the plate. And, you know, these kids who, who screw around with it and then they, you know, he can go there, but, but th- that's where we are today, right? I mean, we're, we're in tie now, aluminum is coming, carbon is coming after that. Um, but so to pull at that aerodynamic thread a little bit more, because I know you wear so many different hats and we could easily do a, you know, 32 part podcast series about all the different <laughs> facets of hmm. uh, your knowledge. But to pull at that aerodynamic thread a little bit more and to make sort of tangible action points for listeners listening, let's do a little bit of a rapid fire on you're a road racer right now. You're, you know, I'll pick a middle of the road weight, say you're 77 to 80 kilograms you're cat one or cat two road racer and you have some money to throw at aerodynamics and you want to go faster on the road. Rapid fire, what tires are you buying? Probably the new GP5000. I don't remember what the the numbering is on, but the, the ones that were, tubeless ones that were launched for the Olympics, phenomenal tires, probably the best. You know, I think Victoria Corsa Speed TLR is probably the quote-unquote fastest rolling resistance tire now. The Conti's just behind it, but has more puncture protection, but has a little bit better aero performance. What chain? I know this is a topic very close to your heart, and I've heard you riffing on this one for hours on end. What chain lube slash wax are we using? Remember now, this is a rapid fire when I've listened to a one-hour podcast on this topic. Yeah, I mean, it. the Durace 11 or 12-speed chain are the, the two fastest chains you can buy off the shelf today. And and then I'd use, uh, obviously, a bit biased, but a Silka <laughs> Super Secret wax or our new graphene wax. Um, you know, you we, you can literally homebrew a sub-4-watt loss chain on a 250-watt input. I mean, that that's there's nothing better that, that we've tested. And we've worked really hard to test a lot of stuff. So... You know, if you want a brand that's not that's not Silka, I, I would get the uh, Ceramic Speed UFO. That's a really good product, also. Uh, helmets, road. They're getting so good. Uh, the Specialized, uh, I can't remember the model, but the the Aero Road helmet that's continues to be one of the fastest. Evade, evade. I think yeah, that might be it. That continues to be really one of the quickest ones out there. But you know, hel- helmets are hard in that they don't they're not universal because of rider position and how people like kind of call it like turtling your head, like where your head sits relative to your shoulders. And so yeah. that one is is harder in that, you know, that evade is probably the fastest helmet for like 70% of the people. But then there are people like I've put it on the wind tunnel and like, oh yeah, check this thing out. And you're like, wow, that's crap. Um, <laughs> you know, didn't expect that. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that's one I would say if, if you have the ability to test or you want to try Chung method, uh, virtual elevation testing for yourself, you can quickly, helmets are a big enough numerical change that you can really quickly find that with uh, Chung testing. Speed suit or skin suit or race suit or whatever we're calling it these days. Something with pockets. Oh my God. Um, they've all gotten so good. I, I, you know, the the Castelli one I I love and and partly because I was sort of there for the beginning of, of that and of what, loved watching it evolve and, and Steve Smith and I are really close friends. Um, but I think all the stuff coming out of the UK right now, that whole kind of Silverstone sports engineering area, I can't even remember the names of the companies offhand, but, you know, the Simon Smarts thing and... and yeah, Watch Shop and, and AeroCoach. Coach. I mean, there, there's all, yeah, AeroCoach. And I mean, the, the stuff coming out from from that crew there, I think all that stuff is is crazy good. We, we, we really, in some of these things, we are getting down to, you know, it's... It's a little bit like what's happened with wheels, where we're kind of now just hair splitting. You know, ten years ago when the Castelli speed suit came out, it was like, wow, this thing is a massive, massive advantage over anything else. And you know, now we're like all these marginal gains. It's an asymptotic relationship, right? I mean, we're you know we're at the ninety nine percent efficiency, and so you know that next big step forward is going to be you know ninety nine point oh five. You know, it's it, it's a marginal gain, but it, it's it's a diminishing return. So I I would say any of those any of those products are well up there. Road bikes. Oh gosh, I the new Cervelo um, S five is I, I think pretty excellent. The stuff, honestly, that Scott is doing, and I'm a little tangential to that, having done some wind tunnel for some of the teams and stuff around that. But Scott, to me, 
was the first one to really figure out how to make an aero a bike that you would put in a wind tunnel and I would call an aero bike. But then when we put it in the test lab and look at its dynamic performance, you're like, oh, it's just like a really good lightweight bike. You know, they were the first to really figure out that whole comfort aero balance thing, in my opinion. And I think they've just continued to to build on that with the uh, the foil and some of their stuff. But but bikes are another one where for, for me, you know, we're really starting to see a, a, a real convergence on sort of the solution. And I think until UCI makes another significant rule change, you know, the, the top four or five bikes are all probably within a couple percent of each other. And you think we're, like, I'm wondering at what point is aerodynamic, is it getting too much? We're starting to see gravel aero bikes. Like, is that an oxymoron, an aero gravel bike? No, and I, I actually think gravel is the next big place where people have a lot to figure out for aero with the big difference being that so many of these gravel events are so long, right? So you're not going as fast to take advantage of the kind of the big watt savings that the companies like to quote, right? It's, you know, it's no longer like this saves 10 watts at, you know, 50K an hour. Well, okay, you're not going 50K an hour on gravel. But when you think of it from a, a time savings percentage, you know, this, this arrow advantage can save you, you know, half a percent in time, but your event is nine hours or 10 hours or whatever, like, oh, yeah, that, that's interesting. That starts to add up. The, the other thing, um, and, and we actually work with a lot of, a lot of the top gravel athletes th that makes this so important is, you know, I teach it more as using arrow to really shift the curve or, or sort of bend the slope of the line on your caloric burn. Right. So if, if I can get you really arrow and I can save you, you know, a hundred, 150 calories an hour, that really changes the dynamic of your race, especially if it's an eight hour race or a 10 hour race, you know, it changes what you're carrying in terms of food and gel. It can totally change the equation if you like miss a feed, right. <laughs> or drop a gel or, or, or something like that. So I, I look at arrow and gravel as, as a really exciting money ball sort of a problem if you're familiar with the Michael Lewis book. Yeah, um, great book. But you know, we're we're really the aero gravel bike isn't winning you that gravel race, but from three or four different perspectives, we can actually use those technologies to change your percentages and and probably even build in a little bit of safety margin for for things like uh, uh calorie intake and, and 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 the like. So it's it's 100% critical in gravel. Um, and, and I'm excited for that. And especially a lot of the companies we work with and, and talk to, cause you know, nobody's really trying that hard yet. <laughs> it's a fascinating area. Uh, folks, if you're looking to go a little bit deeper, I'd highly recommend Josh's podcast, Marginal Gains. Josh, you're a fountain of wisdom. Silica is an amazing brand. And thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me for a chat on the Robman podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.